Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Jenny Fisher, who also has her VTS in oncology. Hey. Hey, hi. hi. I hear you're like not at home. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm actually in Cincinnati ready to go get into some shenanigans. But we have to, we have to talk about some hemangiosarcoma first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, Danny and Jenny, you guys are both our VTSs in oncology. So way smarter about this cancer thing than me and Jordan, which is why we asked you to come on. And then we, this is our third in the series. So we did make sure I get, remember what order we did it. We did canine lymphoma first. And then last week was feline lymphoma. And then today we're going to dive into hemangiosarcoma. Um, and just a reminder, this isn't race approved yet. We're working on it. It is definitely great for self-study, especially if you, you know, are, are getting into the oncology department, you know, I'm going to say if you're studying for any oncology things, you could probably listen to these smart ladies. You'll probably get a point or two of, of important knowledge that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Well, maybe somewhere else if you did your own research. But anyways, they're really smart. (laughs) And even if you don't want to study, I love nerding out on my oncology stuff for no reason other than it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, are you saying you're a hashtag? I'm a nerd. Is that, is that what you're saying? Big one. So many ways. That's why you guys are allowed up here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys uh, dive right in because, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to be the one that's the per- the person of like smartness for this one. So how about it, ladies? <laughs> oh, hemangiosarcoma. There's a lot of letters in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times we like to just call that HSA. Makes things so Heck much yeah. easier. So we can absolutely <laughs> go for HSA instead of hemangiosarcoma. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to kind of introduce you to what it is. And I'm going to let Jenny dive real deep into the hemangio, because I know when most people hear hemangiosarcoma, what do you think? You think those emergency presentations where they have bleeding into their abdomen, it's our hemoabdomens. And of course that's going to be hemangiosarcoma. That is, I mean, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's a really big tip of the iceberg, but (laughs) it is still just the top. There is so much more to it. So when we talk about hemangiosarcoma, HSA, that is a malignant tumor of mesenchymal origin. And so we are not generally looking at like our skin cells or our lymphoma. No, we're tapping into a whole different type of cells. And so these are the vascular endothelial cells. And so when you start to think of mm. vascular, you think, you know, hemo, hemangio, it's going to go where the blood flows. So think mm. about that or start to think about where it's going, where it's going to present and how it's going to behave because it can be anywhere in the body because we have blood anywhere in our body. So true that. vascular structure just kind of goes wherever it wants. We do have some common locations though. So there's the spleen, which just about anyone I swear who is listening to this probably knows that it also <laughs> goes to hang out up in our liver 
or our heart. We've got our heart-based tumors as well, but it can also be the brain, the dermis, the sub-Q muscle. It can go hang out wherever it wants because cancer does what it wants. <laughs> right. But Jenny's going to launch into far more of how it gets there, why it goes there and where exactly it tends to hang out. So, you know, I mean, even as oncology technicians, we love to talk about cancer, but there are certainly those tumors that we talk about that, you know, maybe we don't have as much, um, you know, positive information that we have to share or that, you know, even as oncology technicians, we have our favorite tumors and our not so favorite tumors, right? Um, (laughs) If you're going to get cancer, there are certainly more cancers that you would like to get. And unfortunately, this is one of those ones that's just not on the great list, right? Hmm. that all depends on location. So just like Danny said, because it's a tumor of vascular endothelial cells, anywhere there is blood supply, we can see these tumors form, right? Hmm. So most common presentation that we see is going to be visceral, right? So within the abdominal cavity, the biggest primary location is going to be spleen. Uh, And there's actually something that we call the two thirds rule. And that two-thirds rule states that two-thirds of patients that have a tumor, a primary tumor of the spleen, two-thirds of those patients will be have malignant disease, and two-thirds of those will actually have hemangiosarcoma. So really just talking about the prevalence and how common it is as a primary splenic tumor. Now, when we talk about the causes of hemangiosarcoma, a lot of that is just unfortunately not known, Uh, but it's typically associated like many of our other tumor formations with those suppressor genes, right? Those tumor suppressor genes, they get deregulated because of different proteins uh, causing the body's response um, to not be as good as it once was. So our own body's not being able to turn off those tumor cells when they start to grow. We can also see different growth factors like VEGF, um, stimulation that causes growth as well. These tumors can be extremely locally invasive. Even Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the spleen, this is not one of those masses where we can go in and take part of it, right? Just take the tumor. Where we talk about uh, liver tumors, we go in and do a liver lobe resection. That's not the case with these splenic tumors. And it is because of that severe invading of those um, surrounding tissues. With our um, uh, visceral hemangiosarcomas, these guys are extremely metastatic. And remember metastatic is that one word that differentiates benign and malignant tumors. So benign tumors can be locally invasive, but they don't spread to other locations. Hemangiosarcoma is extremely highly metastatic. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of times patients present, if they have primary splenic or um, visceral hemangiosarcoma, a lot of times they present with that hemoabdomen, right? Um, and many times they already have concurrent metastatic disease as well. So um, unfortunately, due to that very high metastatic rate, sometimes the response, even post-surgery is not going to be all that great. Um, We talked a little bit last week about how tumors spread. And it's really important to know when we're talking about different tumors and how they metastasize, what cell origin they come from. So as Danny mentioned, this is a mesenchymal tumor and our mesenchymal cell tumors tend to like to spread via that vasculature. So just makes sense. And especially when you put those words together, right? Hemangio, same thing, talking about that blood. So these guys tend to 
to spread via the vasculature, which is also why we see very common presentation of metastatic disease within the chest cavity or within the lungs. Mm -hmm. It's also pretty common um, for this tumor to actually spread to the brain. So if we have a patient that maybe has a primary splenic hemangiosarcoma and maybe is having some mentation changes, some mental dullness, something like that, uh, we certainly are going to have a potential metastatic disease listed um, possibly to the brain. So when these cases present, I really want you to think about hemangiosarcoma kind of in, in, in three different groupings or three different categories. And that first one's going to be visceral or that splenic liver um, within the abdomen. Then we're going to talk about cardiac. So these tumors tend to be of the right uh, atrium or right oracle. And then we also have cutaneous, subcutaneous, and intramuscular. Now, all of these have very different prognosis based upon the location, right? So our visceral tumors don't have the best prognosis. Typically median survival time with splenectomy is three to six months, right? Um, our cardiac hemangiosarcomas, the prognosis there is typically two to three months. Something really, really um, good to keep in mind about hemangiosarcoma is that when we have a patient that has primary splenic, about 25% of those patients will also have a concurrent um, right atrium or right oracle hemangiosarcoma as well. Hmm. So when those patients present uh, many times, maybe you're doing a physical exam, you're palpating pulses and you're feeling some, maybe some arrhythmias or you're feeling um, some pulse deficits, very good indicator that maybe we have something going on in the heart there as well. So always good to keep in mind um, that we're going to check that. So with the visceral guys, a lot of times when we see those, those are those acute presentations, right? They're out running typically with mom or dad, or they're being very active and then they collapse, right? Acute collapse. Um, a lot of times they may present even dyspneic. Most of these patients, again, um, pale mucous membranes, delayed capillary refill time present very shocky to the hospital, very tachycardic. And this is because of that large amounts of volume of blood going or bleeding into the abdomen. The other thing with these visceral tumors is we might not see an acute collapse because if they have some of these smaller vessels, maybe it's not a larger vessel to the tumor that ruptures, but it's these smaller vessels that might leak, right? And bleed. And then they reabsorb. Mm -hmm. So you have these patients that have these kind of waxing and waning clinical signs. They may fit, uh, fit the breed segment, right? Typically our large breed dogs, German shepherds tend to be the highest represented breed as far as primary splenic hemangiosarcoma but really any of those other large breed dogs, um, we can certainly see common presentations. Um, these guys are, they're um, exercise intolerance. They're, they have weakness, sometimes some generalized uh, malaise or lethargy, but then they may feel better, right? They feel kind of crappy for a day or two, but then they're kind of back to themselves. Unfortunately, this kind of chronic disease of this kind of bleeding, reabsorbing, bleeding, reabsorbing, most of the time leads to some type of larger rupture, um, typically within two to three months. So um, 
with our cardiac tumors, so uh, a lot of times these patients present with pericardial effusion and what looks like right-sided heart failure. So those right-sided heart failure uh, patients, those heartworm patients, if you see heartworm disease, a lot of times this can look very, very similar um, to mm. that, that, that late-stage heartworm disease. You're going to potentially see ascites. Uh, and the cardiac lesion can be primary or it can actually be metastatic from the spleen, right? Because we just talked about mm. how 25% of patients actually have a concurrent cardiac mass. Typically that's going to be a metastatic lesion, but it also can be a primary. So when you're looking at the spleen and you find a tumor, we want to make sure that we do to uh, have some imaging of the heart just to make sure we're not dealing with two tumors, right? That's going to ultimately change the prognosis. We have a patient that has a splenic tumor that can go for splenectomy, but also has a concurrent heart tumor. That's going to significantly change um, that prognosis. Yeah. Um, on our EKGs with these guys, we can uh, typically see um, lots of tachycardia as well as some low QRS amplitudes. I'm not a cardio person, but what I can tell you um, is that in my experience, and Danny may have a different experience, patients that have splenic, primary splenic as well as concurrent heart, um, right sided heart mass, you can feel pulse deficits in these guys. They auscultate abnormally. Their heart sounds are muffled on that right side. Mm. So it's very significant. And that's again, why that physical exam can play such a huge role with these kids as well. So we talk about visceral and cardiac. Uh, then we have to talk about the skin, the skin, we think or lump it into kind of three different categories. So cutaneous or confined within the dermis, subcutaneous, and then intramuscular. Now, cutaneous hemangiosarcomas, we can actually cure those kids of their disease. So very different prognosis than visceral or cardiac. Now, the cutaneous lesions can be metastatic disease from the primary tumor either in the spleen or within the heart as well. So that makes you realize again, how important that imaging is and all of those staging tests that Danny's going to talk about, because just because we have it in one spot, doesn't mean that we're not going to have it um, within multiple. Most of our cutaneous tumors, um, we know that this is uh, highly affected in our sunbathers. So sun exposure, chronic sun exposure on light pigmented skinned animals. So your white sunbathers, right? My white boxer who likes to sunbathe on her back. Those are the ones that we're going to worry about. Your white kitty cats, those kids as well. Um, metastasis is rare from primary cutaneous, meaning we don't typically see it start in the skin and spread to the uh, liver, spleen, or heart, but the other way we can. So they can start mm. in the spleen or in the heart and spread to the skin um, as well. Interesting. Yeah, it really, it really is. And see, this is why cancer is cool, right? Because so many, so many times when we just, we think about hemangiosarcoma, all people think about is that visceral form. And they don't realize that there might be another form that actually has a really good prognosis and we can actually do some really good stuff with. So prognosis for these kids, 
Um, with our subcutaneous, these kites can live a long time. If that tumor is confined and we can get a complete surgical resection, those kids can do well three plus years, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about tumors that invade those lower muscles, those uh, deeper musculature and into the muscle, those patients don't do as well, right? So that local control, median survival time with surgery and aggressive chemotherapy is about nine months. So Location is huge um, and it's going to be your biggest prognostic indicator, especially um, with, with this tumor specifically. Yeah. And I think too, like um, just a reminder for everybody who's not an onco nurse, the way to really know where the primary site is, is biopsy. Like you, you can't, you can't just be like, um, I think it's this one. Like you have to do the biopsy to figure out what kind of cells are where. So absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the, the thing is though, you know, if we have a patient that has a splenic mass and let's say a skin mass, right. And they're both <laughs> mangiosarcoma, the cytology or histology is not going to go. This is where it started. Right. They're just going mm. to look the same. So mm. sometimes we have to put that history into play. When did these skin masses pop up? Right. And it's taking that whole picture into account because based upon the histology or the cytology, they're going to look the same a lot of times. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, which can also be kind of confusing, which is why, all of those staging tests are so important. There are a few differential diagnoses that you will um, keep on your list as well. Oh yeah. And the biggest one is of course, like our hematoma, right? So it's going to be our benign version. (laughs) And we see hematomas or hematomatoes or however, whatever you call them. Those are usually what we call them when they're due to venipuncture. However, when we're looking at our spleen, um, even those hemoabdomens that come in, we do jump to cancer because a lot of times it's about like three quarters. A lot of times it's going to be some type of malignant tumor, but we've got a hematoma. So there's always a chance. So that discussion always needs to be had with someone that it could actually be benign. Um, and it could be our hematoma, but we also have other primary neoplasms that we want to roll out. We've got the leiomyosarcomas. When we're talking about our heart-based masses as well, if we start looking at boxers, which are one of our little cancer friends, they can also get chemodectomas that are in kind of the same area, not always. And so a lot of times knowing like that it's a boxer looking at everything, we do want to differentiate the two uh, because as Jenny said, uh, hemangiosarcomas are just about everybody's least favorite tumor who works in oncology. We have a lot of discussions on if this was my dog and it had this dot, 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 um, about this specific one, we would treat a lot of the others do a lot of things. When this one comes up, you get a lot of, I don't know what I would do. It's going to, it would depend how I'm feeling. But so this is one of those ones that even those of us who love cancer, we hate this a lot. So, um, and then there's the, of course the, the EMH, the, uh, extramedullary hematopoiesis. Woo. Said that one right. Woohoo. Um, essentially I should have said the easy way, the old dog liver or spleen. And that yeah. is where we can get masses and nodules in our liver and spleen that could be benign. There's no way to know by looking at the picture, the ultrasound image, no way to know if that is going to be benign or not, or if it's going to be hemangiosarcoma. It's, I, I don't I actually don't think I could stress that enough that there is 
no way to tell from that image. So if you ever hear of that, like it looks like this, that is absolutely just an opinion. There's no way to actually tell that. I know enough people have looked at them. We've got radiologists, internists, enough who've done ultrasounds and looked at enough of them to have their own spidey sense tingle and be like, hmm, that's feeling like it might not be. It's looking like this. That is usually their opinion based on everything they already know about the patient, all of the history and bringing it into that picture as well. So it's mm -hmm. not always just because it looks like that. So if you're just sitting in an ultrasound for the first time and you hear somebody say that there's a lot more to that statement than what's on that screen. And so we usually mm -hmm. need to jump into additional diagnostics and we've got quite <laughs> a few for our hemangiosarcoma, because again, it's going to be really location specific. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with the, our, our minimum database and doing talking about our lab work first, and then go into all of those imaging and other procedures that we can do. So our lab work again, for these guys, it is going to be more of that minimum database and finding out a couple things that we can see obviously on our CBC anemia. If we are losing blood due to HSA, we can see that also thrombocytopenia because the body is going to then start trying to work to clot. We're going to have issues, obviously our spleen, um, if it's involved with replacing those blood cells, but these tumors, no matter where they are, can bleed and they can bleed internally or even externally if they rupture, if they're a dermal type, but just keeping that in mind that even if it's, I've seen an intramuscular one that actually this dog was anemic and you yeah. couldn't tell at all, except that it had a swollen leg. And we were like, all of its blood is in the tumor in its leg, which is very odd because it was a German shepherd. And so it was a very big dog. Yeah. And we were like, how is it still losing blood? Cause there was no effusion anywhere. And everyone's like, I don't understand what's happening here. Hemangiosarcoma is what's happening here. So that we can absolutely see that on the CBC, the chemistry, we can see elevated liver enzymes, uh, especially if it has metastasized into the liver or it is primarily in the liver. We can see hypoproteinemia, which is usually secondary to blood loss. That's generally why we would say it's not going to be caused from anything else. And we would want to do coag panels on this. So measuring the PT and PTT. So a lot of times this can be secondary to DIC. So this is going to be some of our emergency patients that are coming in that have the hemoabdomens, but half of patients who present with a hemoabdomen have a coagulopathy. So it's going to be a really good idea to know that ahead of time, especially if people are opting to go to surgery, because not only have, do you have to deal with the bleeding tumor and how much blood they're losing there, but if they have a coagulopathy and you go in and do surgery, you could be causing more problems. So you might need more blood than you think. So that is a very good thing to keep in mind. Um, there was one saying like, if you don't have the in-house PT, PTT and going to do this, that you could do a buccal mucosal bleeding test to just, or they even said the, the quicking a nail, please don't quick their nail, just do the, <laughs> just do the BMBT, but yeah. just to get an idea of their, their clot times before you start going into any, any additional things that you're going to do. Right. And then all the imaging things. So Mangio, can, you can image it anywhere because it can be anywhere. <laughs> yeah. But one of the biggest things we think about is going to be our abdominal ultrasound, right? So we are looking for that visceral type with abdominal ultrasound, or if it has started anywhere else, looking to see if it has spread anywhere within the abdomen. 
This is really, really important to do even on emergency if they come in with a hemo abdomen. Being able to do an abdominal ultrasound to visualize your liver is going to be a really good idea because if they're going to go into surgery and it has already spread to their liver significantly, they're not going to be able to come back from that surgery no matter what. So it helps owners with their decision. Uh, we also can do a thoracic ultrasound. We have echocardiogram on here as well to look for our heart-based masses, but that thoracic ultrasound can give us an idea, um, just the thorax in general to make sure that it's not a different type of tumor. If we have a fusion, seeing where it is, if we have pericardial versus just pleural effusion, we can just take a look around the actual thoracic cavity instead of just taking x-rays and taking a look. However, we do want to take chest x-rays. So even if we come in bleeding into our abdomen and we are critical, getting them stabilized with fluids and blood transfusions and all those things, because if we're going to go to surgery, we want to take chest x-rays because this really does spread to the lungs. And so many tend to have metastasis by the time you find them that this would be giving owners better time to spend with their pet. If it's already spread, then finding it out after surgery or during surgery, um, it can be a better quality time that they could have with their pet and they might make a different decision. So yeah, it would be, it's really a good idea. And one of the things to keep in mind though, is when we're doing thoracic radiographs is that we can only detect our metastatic nodules once they're more than three millimeters. So if they are very tiny, we're not going to be able to see them on our x-ray. However, our CT scan would be. Now, emergency CT scan on a bleeding hemo abdomen, possible hemangiosarcoma, not going to be the best plan, right? So these are going to be the ones that we find masses ahead of time, where if we know that we see a, a nodule in the spleen or on the liver, and we're doing some surgical planning, we can absolutely do a CT scan to see if we detect any of the other micrometastasis instead of um, doing all of the other chest x-rays, abdominal ultrasounds, we'd be able to kind of look at the whole thing. And that's a really good idea. If we find what we think is like a metastatic tumor somewhere, just looking to see if we have them anywhere else. Yeah. And that's all of our imaging. When we come to actually diagnosing our tumors, you hit it on the head with biopsy. Mangiosarcoma <laughs> is going to be almost exclusively the one time that an oncology technician or clinician is not going to say to you, do an FNA, stick a needle in it. No, <laughs> don't do that. Do not do that with these guys. <laughs> and I mean, okay, yeah, you could, but you're going to have to then deal with the consequences of what just happened because remember these like our blood supply, which means they have a high blood supply, which means if you poke mm -hmm. them, they like to bleed right? And we can't always then control the bleeding, especially if we've done a CBC and we're already having coagulation issues, or we don't have a lot of platelets. We're not really sure when we're going to stop that bleeding. We might've just created an emergency. They're also very fragile. So knowing that you can create that and it's fragile, let's just not do that. <laughs> let's go ahead right. and go with a biopsy. Well, we're going to want to remove the whole thing if we can. And this is why all of those imaging tests, whichever ones you need to do to find out how big it is, what kind of problem we're dealing with before we try to address that problem. 
and we'll go in with a biopsy. Now you can do an aspirate if you're so say like when we're talking about our old dog liver and spleen, we're taking a look at it. If it's not cavitary and it's a solid tumor, you can absolutely do an aspirate of that. I know a lot of internists that do that or radiologists that will. Um, and that is depending on all of the other history and our blood work and coagulation and finding out all of that status first before we ever do that. And that is absolutely going to be up to them. Most of them, they will make sure that either they, or as the technician, we let the owner know the risks of that. And not even just kind of letting them know that there's, there's that risk. Cause you know, we always say there's a risk of that with most FNAs that we do, right? Like right. things can bleed, especially if we're poking something in the abdomen, this could happen. We really need to tell them like, there's a high chance this could happen, like that. We really have to stress that. And then what that would mean for their pet, if that happens, um, to make sure that they've got a really solid understanding because that's a big one. So yes, <laughs> biopsy, biopsy not ask. <laughs> um, and then there's not really a whole lot of special tests that we do out there for, for hemangiosarcoma, except there is currently a study going on at the university of Minnesota and they're doing it in Minneapolis specifically. It's called the shine on project. They already have all the people enrolled and they're, oh gosh, phase three or phase four. I had it pulled up earlier, but they're, they're moving right along in this and they've got a blood test that they're doing where they're trying to catch the mangio early on in the disease. And so once they've been able to, to catch it early on, they're starting this drug EBAT. And I apologize. I don't know all the details about the drug because it's being studied and they're studying it in purebred goldens, boxers, and Portuguese water dogs. And so far, it sounds like they are having promising results in preventing, um, hemangiosarcoma from spreading or developing. I am so excited. I can't wait for more results on this to come out, but mm -hmm. so there is a special test coming, which maybe we won't all hate hemangiosarcoma so much if this proves to be amazing. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, it's fun to see like the different like research projects and stuff that people are involved with. Mm -hmm. Cause I feel, I mean, it's the stuff from the human side that's filtering down to us. Right? Right. Um, and I can just, the, the thing that I think of is, um, I don't know if you remember that commercial, the Super Bowl commercial, can't remember which university it was right now, but it was oh. the golden retriever and, um, they sponsored like a whole ad about oh, the that was last oncology year, department. Right? I feel like it, I, it couldn't year. have been last year. I feel like it had to have been longer than that at this point. Yeah, I think it was two years ago. I think it okay. was CSU. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's so cool. And it's, yeah. you know, people are, people are starting to diagnose and treat some of these things so mm. much more than, than when I was a kid. It, when I was a kid, it was like, your dog has cancer. And like, that was it. Like, nobody, nobody like said what kind it was or how to, how to treat it. it was like your dog has cancer. Um, but it's cool to have like these like different blood tests that are coming out and, um, it'll be, it'll be fun to see what happens in the next, uh, you know, five, 10 years. Absolutely. Especially for, and I mean, we're going to talk about TCC transitional cell carcinoma and mm -hmm. um, a later one, but that one was really hard to diagnose because the inflammation could cause issues and you didn't want to seed the cancer by poking into right. it. So they came up with the K 
that RAF test to actually detect that. And so if they can come up with a blood test that detects this, it's going to be great. And it's game changing. Yeah. Um, being yeah. able to easily get the diagnosis is fabulous. And it makes everything go so much better with trying to develop all of the treatments, because the more that we actually diagnose with it, the more we find it, the more we want to treat it. Well, the and the earlier too, like it's so mm-hmm. like, cause you're talking about vascular, right. And it's like, if you could catch it earlier rather than later when it's even more invasive and more metastasized, like how cool is that? Right. And like, that's you're talking the- like short prognosis to potentially long prognosis, which go long prognosis. Right? <laughs> uh, and I mean, so once, once we've done all our good things, right, we've got our biopsy, we know what we're dealing with. We know where it is, then that's going to bring us to treatment, right? So one of the biggest treatments is going to be biopsy slash surgery. So we want to get as much of this tumor out as possible, right? We want, we, we want those clean margins. We want no cells bleeding on over because like Jenny said, if it's, the, um, dermal kind or the cutaneous kind, we can cure them. If we can get that whole tumor out, we can go ahead and cure them and they don't need additional care afterwards. And they can just keep going on, living their life going on. Um, I personally know people where their pets have done that. And so it's fabulous. And <laughs> I love curing things in oncology because it's so rare and it's so amazing when we get to do that. Um, otherwise what we are looking at is surgery to remove some of those harder to reach tumors like our heart tumors. It is possible to remove some of them. It really depends on the skill and experience of your surgeon or cardiologist, depending on which one goes for it or is comfortable doing it. Either one can, um, but there aren't a lot out there. Heart surgery on these guys is still not regularly performed, but there are some, I know some surgeons that they love doing these and they are very skilled at it and they can do it still really. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be real, not professional. It's a real crappy prognosis no matter what, um, because you're not going to get a good margin unless you pull their whole heart out. We don't have heart, heart transplants yet for our veterinary patients. It'll be great when that day comes, but we're not there. So just keeping yeah. that in mind too, what that's going to look like post-op and then emergency surgery. So when we are looking mm-hmm. at our hemoabdomens where we've got to get that spleen out because it is just uncontrollably bleeding. And so yeah. that is going to take your patient out before anything else. And it's really important to make sure that we are supporting them with blood transfusions. So those guys are going to be in the hospital um, and they might be in the hospital for a couple of days, depending on how acute it was or not. And I know that a lot of people also talk about auto transfusions, especially when we have our hemoabdomens, which there's not been a lot of study yet, but thinking about the fact that if this is due to a cancer, like it's not trauma related. I know some that are trauma related, auto transfusions are amazing. You can go for it, but these could be cancer cells that you are just right. putting right back into the body. So it is honestly better to just go with, um, a blood transfusion with donor blood versus an auto yeah. transfusion at that point just because we don't know. I'm not going to lie. Like it's not. Been yeah. We, easy. we typically don't do it for these guys. Cause we're like, we just don't want to seed things just in case that's a thing. It's like, it's not, 
better to not. I mean, if it's the only thing you have, or uh, well, yeah, there's you know what I mean. Different. Like I'm all about like <laughs> that or death. Yep. Right. I was like, it's, it's the, like, you can get the, you can get it out for sure. And it's going to be the blood loss that is going to be the determining factor on whether or not your patient lives, then do it. And because honestly, the prognosis isn't great anyway, if it ends up being hemangiosarcoma, but if it ended up being a hematoma, you, right. you save their life anyway, and they get to go on doing their thing. So true. Very just true. remembering that's, that is a big part of the hospitalization that happens for these guys. And when they, when they pop in to emergency, they are usually coming in because it has been acute, right? Like they'll tell you they were totally fine. And then they collapsed in the yard. And it's always, why are the big dogs always collapsing in the yard? It can't be right next to the (laughs) front door where you can easily get them to the car. It's always the yard. Right. But usually it's like they were acting fine, or maybe they seemed a little off and then they seemed really weak. They didn't want to get up. So it's that blood loss that we're seeing. Um, most of us know what that looks like. If you've ever worked in emergency, as soon as you start to hear those symptoms being described, you're like, and somebody's going to need to just put a little ultrasound probe right over here on our abdomen, just to take a look, because that's one of the first yeah. things we need to do right now. Um, yeah. And, and um, I don't know if you guys, I mean, cause I've, I've dealt with a couple of them coming in that, that obviously had like an acute bleed, right. Versus mm-hmm. the chronic ones. Um, we try not to blast them with a ton of fluids right away. Cause there's, there's, it's either bleeding now because the vessel is wide open or there's like a little tiny bit of like a platelet plug. And so, you know, we, we do the whole, like, don't blast the platelet plug off. Like, let's get them into surgery and then we can blast them with fluids, you know, make sure they're stable, but you know, it's right. that whole like fine balance of mm-hmm. don't increase the blood pressure too much. Mm-hmm. You want it somewhat normal, but don't, don't overdo it guys. Just hold and on. We'll get there. You brought, <laughs> and you brought up a really good point. The acute versus the chronic. So these guys yeah. can also have chronic hemoabdomens, which sounds kind yeah. of strange, but they don't always just bleed and then never stop right? So sometimes they'll bleed a bit, they will clot over and then everything will be fine again. So listening to that in the history too, if they've been saying, um, we want to pay attention to that. One of those things that, um, I'm not sure if everyone knows, but when they present with a hemoabdomen, you can take a PCV on your abdominal fluid and then also compare it to a PCV on your peripheral blood. And if the PCV percentage is higher, in your abdominal effusion, then that generally suggests that there's an active bleed. So if, Mm. if the abdominal one is higher than our peripheral, it means the blood is currently flowing into our abdomen. Whereas if it's the other way around, it means usually that there was bleeding. It's stopped currently. Now, if you Mm. catch it right in the beginning, Hmm, but if it's been (laughs) going on, right? Like it could suddenly switch, which is why you would then also want to keep checking their peripheral PCV to see if there's changes there. Cause that would also tell you that, but that is a, a thing that they do in emergency to kind of tell if this is, if, especially if the dog is now up and walking around again, but you see that it is, and you're, they're like, Hmm, we actively bleeding right now. Just catching it. So yeah. that's, that's a fun little tip or trick. That's why it's really important to label those tubes and make sure you know, which one you just ran yeah. and why that's so true. Right. So but when we look at, okay, 
we've had surgery, we've been hospitalized, we've had blood transfusions, we've had things removed. How are we going to treat this afterwards? We have a couple different options. Unfortunately, as Jenny said, our mean survival time is not great. And so we're not buying a lot of time with chemotherapy. It's not like lymphoma where without treatment, we're looking at a couple of weeks to a month. And with treatment, we're looking at like a year. Oh no, we are looking at like two to six months or I mean, right then, depending if they show up emergency. So like it's, right. it's not a big period of time. So when we talk about our treatment, we really have to also keep that quality of life discussion with the owner. But some of our options, we do have some chemotherapy options. Um, doxorubicin is the big one. And there are some multi-drug protocols um, called like VAC, which stood for Christine adriamycin, which is doxorubicin um, and cyclophosphamide. I know some have seen some success with that type of protocol, but again, that mainstay, even in the multi-drug ones is going to be doxorubicin. So when we use this in our dogs, it can cause arrhythmias. So knowing if we have cardiac issues ahead of time, if it's a heart-based mass or such, mm. then we do want to make sure that we know that ahead of time to make sure we're not causing any issues when we do it with our cats. If they do this, although it is much more rare, but it can affect their kidneys. So we have to watch that with those guys. Mm. And then there's also metronomic. So, um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been used. Everyone is studying to on every kind of cancer there is just to see <laughs> if it works because it's starting to show promise on so many that mm. they're like, well, if they want to try, let's do this, let's try it. So they are seeing some success with some of those, but again, this is not long-term success, unfortunately. So right. we will try what we can. Um, there is radiation therapy, which I'm totally going to turn that one over to Jenny in just a second, <laughs> because with our um, non-viscerals, <laughs> pretty much anywhere else, they can actually go for radiation therapy instead. Um, mm. But the one type of treatment that is not as universally known, but should be and can be used and is not as expensive is going to be our Chinese herb Yunin Biao. Oh, love it. <laughs> right? It's fantastic. So it yeah. is um, topical or oral and anyone who's not used it, it's used to help control bleeding. Do we know exactly how it works? Nope. Do we know exactly nope. what's in it? Nope. nope. It's a big old secret. <laughs> now we think that it works by activating platelets um, which is why it can help treat that bleeding. So what we tend to do is we have people do it not to fully prevent bleeding, but with those chronic ones where it's on and off, they can give this to help prevent that from happening. And so if they don't want to do any other type of treatment, they maybe don't want to do chemotherapy or surgery. It can give them that extra time where they're not feeling awful because of bleeding yeah. and owners can just hang out with their pets and just have that little extra time instead of it being that immediate decision that needs to be made. And this comes in this box of 16 capsules, <laughs> the same, I swear it's the same box, no matter what you do, you do need to be careful where you get it from. Make sure, because it's not regulated, this is just an herbal supplement. So you want to yep. make sure that your source is a good, credible source. But there's also the emergency pill, which is the little red pill. I feel like everyone knows who's used this with the little red pill. It is just, I think it's four times the dose that is in a normal capsule. I talked to one of my doctors who she's starting to get, her, uh, she was going into some complementary medicine. She's internal medicine, but she's doing some complementary. 
and it's actually an activator. Okay. So like you do give the capsules still, but it may, oh. but it, it's like you give the capsules and then the T pill like activates it and actually, so you want to use both of them and there's dosing. And I don't know, remember the dosing, but there's dosing for like the different sizes. Right. But also what's kind of cool is like, if you have a patient under anesthesia or they're vomiting, you can give it rectally and it absorbs mm-hmm. just as well. So like, if you've got something in surgery, you can put it rectally and it'll help. Um, if you have a patient with epistaxis where yep. they're having their nose bleed, that's the, <laughs> one of the topical uses, man, you just open those. We back- do them for rhinoscopies. <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh yes. my gosh. I never even thought of that. I'm so used to like yeah. the epinephrine thing. That's an amazing, yes. Use that. And so we can do, we, we do it rectally sometimes like, you know, right as we're going into the procedure. Cause we don't give it orally before because it's the anesthesia, blah, blah, blah. Right. But, um, but like, if we forget about it, like, we'll, we'll put it in water and then squirt it up the nose. And, and I hate the smell of it. It makes me gag because it smells like, and I'm sorry if you guys love the smell, but it reminds me of patchouli and I can't handle it. I'm like, Ugh. sorry. Yeah. So, well, and- people see it, t- it smells like dirt and I'm like, I don't know what kind of dirt you have, but my dirt does not <laughs> smell like that. So <laughs> special dirt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and another thing to remember is like, they can have side effects. They're usually really mild though, but if you're using it when they're going through chemotherapy or if they're having other symptoms, trying to differentiate to make sure it's not from that. So that it's like vomiting, diarrhea, got some flatulence in there. So just let people know that they can yeah. see that. Um, but I'm going to backtrack over to the radiation therapy because I think that that is such an important part of treating hemangiosarcoma. Yeah. And Jenny knows so much more about that than I could ever hope to know. <laughs> yes. You know, when we talk about hemangiosarcoma as a primary tumor, gaining local control is what is really important, right? And we gain local control of our primary splenic tumors by removing the spleen or taking out doing a splenectomy. So when we have these subcutaneous or intramuscular hemangiosarcomas, we're going to use a systemic treatment like chemotherapy to help prevent or delay metastasis, but to help gain local control, either of a tumor that's non-resectable, um, mm. or if we have a tumor that was resectable, but with dirty margins where we were unable to get clean, uh, margins because of the location, we can use radiation therapy to kind of clean up, um, those, those left behind cancer cells. So radiation therapy is a fantastic modality to be able to use that. The thing with radiation therapy is it does not like bulky disease. So the mm-hmm. less amount of disease that is present, potentially the better response we're going to have um, with that local therapy. So again, we're not going to use this for our visceral or cardiac tumors. Uh, lots of tumor uh, tissues in the body do not like to be radiated. <laughs> uh, and the heart is one of those. <laughs> so uh, that's not something that we are going to treat with radiation therapy. That's going to be either surgical resection and then follow up with chemotherapy, but those cutaneous subcutaneous and intramuscular tumors, uh, radiation therapy can be great in adding, um, uh, some, some local control there. When we talk about our treatment, we got to talk about like what we're going to talk about with our clients, right? So 
from the very initial conversation about hemangiosarcoma, it is all about that location. So when people say, well, my, my vet told me it's hemangiosarcoma, what can you tell me? And you're like, too much, uh, what, what type? <laughs> and they're like, what, there's a, what does that mean? Or where is it? Why does that matter? Because it actually matters for this one. So when they come to see the oncologist, we really have to make sure that we know all of those things because otherwise we're not going to be able to give them the right information. And we want to make sure that if we're giving someone like hope for a three-year survival time, we're telling them about the right type of cancer. And it's not actually six months was the actual expected time for you. So right. right up front, just being and very honest, because this one is really hard because we love as oncology technicians, being able to go in to talk about the hope that they can have, because we know that a lot of people immediately go to the place of my pet has cancer. They're going to die here in like two days. Even if that's not even the case, I swear that's where most people go. They're pretty <laughs> sure they're watching them pass away right in front of their face. Um, so we have, so I, I mean, I love being able to go in there and be like, okay, well, let's talk about what this actually looks like. And it's this, whereas we walk in with this one and we're like, we need to be really honest. And they're like, oh, well, my neighbor's can dog had cancer and they're still alive. And it's two years later. And you were like, and that's probably a different kind of cancer. So it's being able to not dash their hope, but trying to get them to be very realistic in what they hope to achieve. So mm. on the emergency part where either it's the heart-based mass that they're having issues with a visceral one, being able to say like, yes, cause some are just like, absolutely do everything right. Go to surgery. And you're like, here's the thing with that though. We can go to surgery. This is what we're looking at. Like this could be saying goodbye to your dog because if we get to surgery and there's cancer in XYZ locations and waking up is actually going to be worse off for them. Or they do surgery and we find out like, they're like, nope, just complete it anyway. And you're like, okay, but then they're going to have to be doing post-op recovery during the time that you could have had left with them. So keep in yeah. mind that they won't be able to go for long walks, jump up on the bed, do all of those things because they've got incisions and they can't go swimming if they love going swimming. Whereas you're like, okay, if they have a short period of time left, if we get them stable and comfortable where they can go home with you and you can do some of these things, which one would you rather do? Can we use Unim bio and get them there? So we have to really have very serious conversations with them more than once because that first conversation is either an emergency situation or it's the diagnostic one where it's bad news. And so then coming back and having that realistic conversation again, as a technician being like, okay, here we go. We're going to do it again. And then setting them up also for the chemotherapy. So if they're a cat and they hate coming to the vet and it's going to just <laughs> destroy your relationship, like if you don't have very long left, that's not worth it. So we would want to make sure of that for them. Mm -hmm. um, but then also setting them up for, if we are doing chemo, we are going through with this, you know what, we can absolutely not make them suffer through this, right? So with the chemotherapy, we want to make sure that we keep them symptom-free, um, side effect free, if we can, making sure that we have appropriate doses. One of my favorites, so we're lucky enough to have um, a hospice uh, locally here. And so as we were treating a patient, of course, it's a golden retriever <laughs> for, um, uh, splenic hemangiosarcoma, they did surgery 
And right when we were instituting chemo, they started meeting with the hospice that to then, you know, just handle all of the other things so that we would just focus on the cancer part. And we made sure that if they were going to start any supplements, even that vet knew like to wait until we started chemo to make sure that if we are having side effects, we know it's from the chemo and we can change it versus anything they may have started or had them take. So we timed it right and worked really well together. Uh, that dog was my miracle child. Two years later was still going. Uh, so I'm not sure what magic that hospice vet <laughs> used. Um, but I do know that she did a lot of very personal things with that dog. I have no idea how much this costs or what that looks like, but there were a lot right. of things tailored to that specific dog. Would she have made it that long anyway? Don't know, but it was an option that we honestly, in my oncology department, we always give that hospice information, whether or not they're doing treatment or not, um, because they're so fabulous at end of life, being able to come to yeah. their house and do all of those things. So we work really well with them to make sure that we're doing the best care we can for the pets. Um, so they'll even address like the pain and deal with pain meds and things so that as we're just treating the cancer, it works really, really well. And it's amazing. Um, but then we do want to make sure that if, I mean, if they don't want to do chemotherapy, there's no guilt in that you did surgery. You've either cured them, which is great. And please don't come back in for chemo because we don't need it. Or you did some radiation. And so now you also, so that they know what that plan is, make sure we give them every single option because it's better to give them all the options than to just brush it off and not give them the choice. I also got really angry with a veterinarian because we had someone referred to us for a splenic mass. Right. And so of course we had the whole discussion about, it was not an acute bleed where the dog was down, but, um, and so we gave them all of the information, right. Doctor went through all of the statistics, everything about what it could be differentials. Then I went in and they were super upset because no one gave them the option of surgery. The, the person actually told them, well, you, surgery is not an option for you. You're just going to have to, you know, like deal with it as it goes. It's probably cancer. So we're probably going to die in X, Y, Z time. And mm. I was like, ouch, they didn't even tell you, like, even if it was a slim chance, didn't give you the chance to make that decision for your dog. They decided to do surgery and it was a hematoma. So they were sitting there thinking that their dog had cancer and was going to pass away when I honestly have no idea actually what happened to that dog because it had hematoma and it went and lived its happy little life um, wow. without a spleen <laughs> minus its spleen. So it's always, that's what our communication is going to be the biggest of getting as much information to them, to let them make their decision to be the best decision that they can make for their family. Yeah. Yeah. It just, sorry. That was my bad story. I don't like that story, but but the one before no, it, where she you was know two what? I, later, Kaylee was, was rocking and rolling. <laughs> I've definitely had similar stories where it's like, you know, cause doing surgery is not cheap. And so it's like, okay, well, here's this mass. We're very concerned about it. You know, we can do surgery if it's a hematoma, you know, you're like, woohoo. If it's not a hematoma, it's probably bad. And so, you know, we've definitely had those those conversations. And it's like, you love when it comes back the hematoma and you're like, aren't you so glad you didn't decide to euthanize that day? Cause that was an option. You know what I mean? And, right. and, and yeah, those are kind of those cr crazy conversations. 
when we talk about cautions specifically with this tumor, I think the biggest thing to remember is location, right? So just like we've said, if we talk about a visceral or a cardiac based hemangiosarcoma, that's going to be a much different conversation, a much different potential outcome than if we're talking about something that's um, a, a dermal tumor or a subcutaneous tumor that's completely resected. So anytime you hear the word hemangiosarcoma before you do that internal vomit, where you just really don't even want to talk about it or think about it, you want to make sure and find out more information, specifically the location. Anytime we're talking about chemotherapy, we're going to talk about chemotherapy safety and the cautions with that. Again, we are going to have a specific podcast where we focus just on that. So that's why we haven't really been going into the chemotherapy safety when we're talking about these, these, um, specific tumor types. So we are going to cover that. Don't think that we're not, uh, we're just not covering <laughs> it each individually with this, but, um, chemotherapy safety as far as handling, uh, as well as, um, at home patient care as well. So biggest mm -hmm. thing, location, 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 uh, and then kind of go from there. But, you know, it, it's, it's not on the, if I had to get cancer, the cancer I want list, yeah. But there is still some hope, certainly with the newer immunotherapies that are coming out, maybe things like autologous cancer vaccines, that maybe we might see some improved survival with these tumor types. But unfortunately, the standard therapies that we have today, we're just not seeing a lot of great response with them, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, now that we've gone all doom and gloom, let me tell you what <laughs> one of my favorite parts of hemangiosarcoma is. And it's such a technician thing, such a technician thing. It is when they have been surgically removed and they're the spleen, the splenic type. Okay. Is when they walk out with this giant thing and start going, how much do you think this weighs? <laughs> and everyone starts taking bets yeah. on how much you think this giant thing weighs, because you know what? There is no happy part of sarcoma, except for making bets with other veterinary professionals about how much that might weigh. Yeah. Um, and we have found one of the things I have seen, and this is not scientific at all. Oh, I was about to say, time, there's a thing. I might be thinking the same thing as you. Where the bigger they are, the more likely they are to be benign. And the, the bigger and the that, uglier they are. Right. Because that means that they've bled and then clotted over and they've had a chronic thing. Whereas cancer tends to be like, I'm going to bleed and kill you now <laughs> versus maybe I'll let you stick around a little longer. Right. But, so <laughs> yes, it, it's not scientific. I don't know anyone that's done a study on that, which if somebody does, Ooh, that would that'd be great. Be really and that would be study. awesome to know because then that's a fish of a visual. What am I saying here? That it will be a visual um, that you can have it's a physical visual. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I'm getting there. It's good. I just, I, I think so many things are gross. Uh, I'm an oncotech. I don't do bleeding. Well, I actually pass out. <laughs> so if it's that gross, they all know to tell me, and I will actually not get to partake in the betting. I will oh have my to God. Mm, I'm that girl. This girl has definitely almost hit the floor when we were biopsying a tumor that wouldn't stop bleeding. So it's, you're not thing. supposed to admit that Danny. Oh, but I always tell everyone that, and you know why? because surgery techs are my heroes because they do what I cannot. So they are always my hero everywhere I go. So just know if you are a surgery tech, I love you. I will never do what you do. I'll talk to all your crazy clients. If you deal with the thing that's bleeding, I got it. Oh my so, God. So but funny. you know, that big old mess. I just, 
we had one that was like 14 pounds, except the animal weighed like 30 pounds. And we were like, I'm Ooh. sorry, what? That's huge. That is the, how skinny like are you right now? Half of your oh, like body was, weight. Right. So then Dang. that dog actually came out a little more critical than some because of just that. That's the, the, yeah. the blood volume. Right. And all those vessels. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. So those were things we had to watch. But I figured, you know, just as a tip of the week, <laughs> try and guess how much those weigh. You see one of those on the surgery schedule, be like, hey, hey, are we weighing that after? Let's get a little wager. Who's buying lunch tomorrow? <laughs> it's such a tech thing to do. We all yeah. do it. <laughs> We're like, how and much of course is you that? Have to, gotta equate it to food, right? So it's gonna be, we gotta oh. buy one. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you meant like the tumor <laughs> equating it. It's the tip of the week. <laughs> Go there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to piggyback question of the week to what you just said. What is the heaviest splenic mass you've taken out? Cause that's always fun. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I remember. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to have to find I don't that. remember, but I might have to, I, well, I don't know if I have any pictures, Well, I, pro- I lied. I a hundred percent have pictures in my folder of, a- and now for the question of the week thought I didn't (sighs) cool um anything else you guys want to mention this week on the the hamangio no no No, I think that's I think that's about it I'm excited to do a different tumor next week (laughs) I know you guys are like let's talk about hamangio yay a different one (laughs) just terrible there's no that dog that was still alive after two years I was like you've got to be kidding me this is amazing how are you still you know I don't even care just keep on keeping on kid because you're like I don't know this outlier thing you are an outlier (laughs) I was like I don't know what they're doing over in hospice right now but she was on like a specific cocktail of herbal supplements and stuff and I was like keep on keeping on girlfriend she was just a happy so bouncy funny. golden. I was like, I, you're, you're going to get like lymphoma. It's going to take you out. I don't know. <laughs> right. Oh my God. But, uh, all right, up. ladies. Well, thanks again for, um, you know, all your onco brains. I miss that. There's no kittens on the end of this one. <laughs> uh, they are doing well and they have, been, <laughs> they have been named. So there's piglet Eeyore and Winnie. Oh, I love it. Maybe next week we can get some more squeaks. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, ladies. Bye. Later. Um, you know, all your onco brains. I miss that there's no kittens on the end of this one. (laughs) Uh, They are doing well and they have been (laughs) they have been named. So there's Piglet. Eeyore and Winnie. Oh, I love yeah. it. Maybe next week we can get some more squeaks. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, ladies. Bye. Later. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.